Hello, and welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Pekosek. Today, we are very fortunate to be joined by two of Canada's leading economists to talk about the pandemic economy and how it may impact your career. Our guests today are Chris Reagan and Bill Robson. Chris is the founding director of McGill University's Max Bell School of Public Policy and is an associate professor in McGill's Department of Economics. He's the author of Economics, the most widely used introductory economics textbook in Canada. Professor Reagan was the chair of Canada's Ecofiscal Commission, uh, which launched in November 2014 with a five-year horizon to identify policy options to improve environmental and economic performance in Canada. Chris was also a member of the Federal Finance Minister's Advisory Council on Economic Growth. From 2010 to 2012, he was the president of the Ottawa Economics Association. From 2010 to 2013, he held the David Dodge Chair in Monetary Policy at the C.D. Howe Institute, arguably Canada's most influential think tank, and for many years was a member of the Institute's Monetary Policy Council. He has served as the Clifford Clark Visiting Economist at Finance Canada, and in 2004, to 2005 served as the special advisor to the governor of the Bank of Canada. He joins us from the West Island of Montreal. Chris, welcome to the Career Builders podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Our other guest, Bill Robson, has been the president and CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute since July 2006, after originally joining the think tank in 2000. He has written more than 240 monographs, articles, chapters, and books, on such subjects as government budgets, pensions, healthcare financing, inflation, and currency issues. He is a member of the panel of senior advisors to the Auditor General of Ontario and the IFO World Economic Survey Expert Group, and a regular commentator on BNN Bloomberg. Bill has taught undergraduate public finance and public policy at the University of Toronto and delivered a master's level course in public finance at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy from 2014 to 2019. Bill joins us from Toronto. Welcome, Bill, to the Career Builders podcast. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you both. Uh, could you just sort of, in a way that maybe the average non-economics focused listener can understand this, where are we at right now in terms of the economies of Canada and the United States? Uh, well, uh, we're not in a very happy place as we do this uh, uh, interview uh, toward the end of May of 2020. Uh, up until a few months ago, we would have said that we were in an expansion that was getting a little old, uh, a little bit more debt than we were comfortable with, and a few clouds on the horizon, and sometimes more than just clouds on the horizon, particularly if you think of what was happening with international trade. Uh, you know, the Trump administration hasn't been uh, very internationally minded. Uh, since then, uh, though, the, the, the lightning bolt that's hit the world is this uh, coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. And it has put us through an uh, economic decline that's quite unlike anything that we've seen before. Uh, I guess in two respects. I mean, the world has suffered from major outbreaks of disease before, but uh, the speed with which events unrolled this time and some of the unique characteristics of this virus have meant there's been this massive retrenchment. Uh, consumers, businesses, uh, uh, all kinds of uncertainty pulling back. Uh, people worried about the health effects, both uh, for themselves or their families, uh, their friends, uh, their workers, but also with governments clamping down with some of these public health measures. 
And so as a result, we've really seen a sharp contraction. A lot of sectors, uh, particularly uh, uh, affecting young people fresh out of school uh, or even in school, uh, a lot of that's really ground to a halt. I mean, uh, I, I think most of us would have uh, had our first jobs in kind of hospitality uh, uh, oriented industries, certainly summer jobs, and a lot of that's dried up. So uh, the, the point where we are right now, we're kind of, I think, probably in the trough of this, uh, hoping to come out of it, uh, but so much depends on the progress of the disease uh, and the longer we stay down in this very low level, the, the tougher a rebound is going to be. So we're really in, in something uh, that we haven't seen uh, in our lifetimes. Uh, I'm uh, possibly on the optimistic side when it comes to the speed of the recovery, but we're all, I think, uh, at risk of kind of seeing what we want to see, what we're hoping to see. Uh, so we'll all watch the health indicators as well as the economic indicators very closely. Yeah, not a huge amount to add to that. Um, I think we are in the probably the middle of the early phase of what may come to be known as the great shutdown, uh, because that is really what we are experiencing in Canada, in the United States, in many, many countries around the world, where we have intentionally shut down huge chunks of our economy uh, so that people could basically you know, stay at home and we could start to control the public health aspects. I think, um, you know, we're in the middle of the second quarter uh, right now, May 20, May 25th. It's the middle of the second quarter. Uh, and I think most people are thinking that this quarter will be uh, not just a, a decline in economic activity, but a massive decline. Uh, my guess is that we are in for something like a 25% decline of activity from last quarter to this quarter. So if you recovered immediately, it would still be a decline for the year of about six or 7%, and that would be huge. Uh, and if we don't recover you know, over quarter three or quarter four, if it takes us several quarters to recover, then we could be in for really a, a huge annual decline in GDP. So it is, uh, it is a decline or a change in economic activity, the likes of which we have never seen, the cause of which we certainly haven't seen in our lifetime. Uh, and I think you'll get into more in your, in your questions. But it is, uh, it's not pretty. Uh, and as Bill said, uh, you know, we could debate where, where you choose to be optimistic. You could be optimistic about how, how uh, quickly we recover. You could be optimistic about how little permanent scarring there is on the economy. Uh, there's lots to debate here about what the next you know, year or 18 months looks like. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a lot of moving pieces. If you could pinpoint the biggest challenge or challenges that we're facing right now from an economic standpoint, what would you say that that would be? Well, I would say the biggest challenge, I suppose, is two-part problem that kind of goes together is knowing when we should restart the economy uh, because if you do it too soon then there's a, a very real chance that we'll end up you know kind of going back home uh, in a month or two if, if, the, if the cases spike again uh, so when do we go back but also related to that is should we open up the economy you know all at once uh, should we do it sector by sector? Uh, if it is sector by sector, then is there is it obvious that you know sector A needs to go before sector B? 
Um, you know, is it obvious, for example, that we have to get kids in schools and daycares first uh, so that everybody else can go back to work? Well, that's got some weird mm -hmm. aspects to it. So again, and we've got no playbook on this. So I think that's the big challenge. Like how and when do we all go back? Because once we all go back, we're kind of back, you know, moving toward normal. But how and when do we do that? If I can uh, layer on a, a, a piece of uncertainty that's really plaguing uh, everyone, whether you're uh, in, uh, in business or uh, uh, in, in, uh, if, if you're a policymaker, it's what that new normal might look like. Uh, at the moment, and you'll have heard all the discussions about things like working from home, uh, what's going to happen to hospitality, what's going to happen to retail, uh, we really don't, as Chris said, there's no playbook. There's no uh, precedent in modern times. Some people look back uh, to, say, the flu pandemic of roughly a century ago and say, uh, isn't it amazing how quickly people went back to behaving the way they did before? They went back to shaking hands. They went back to hugging. Uh, big cities continued to attract population. People continued to cluster together for all kinds of reasons. Um, and I, I, I suspect that there will be a little bit of a surprise as we go forward, uh, finding how quickly people do want to kind of get back to that. But that's a guess. We don't know. And as we're thinking about the, the, the resumption of activities, as Chris was talking about, uh, it's really important to, to try and suss that out. Because if we're supporting businesses in the short term, if we're supporting workers in the short term, if we're kind of trying to bridge across what we expect is going to be a valley with familiar terrain on the other side, that's one thing. But if if there's just never going to be a travel industry again, if there will never be live entertainment where people gather together in large numbers again, I don't believe that's true, but suppose that's true. Well, then many of the bridges that you're talking about building really shouldn't be built at all. We ought to be trying to transition away from those things as quickly as possible, help people find different work, uh, because the far side of the valley doesn't exist, or at least it's not recognizable territory. So that's that's a that's a real tough one. I think we all have kind of instincts about that, but when you're in the middle of the episode, very hard to tell what's uh, more reliable by way of a prediction. Hmm. That is a really interesting point you've just made. Just um, to kind of shift momentarily in looking at sort of the global picture, are there any major differences from what you guys have just talked about terms of just the overview and the challenges being faced uh, here in North America versus overseas is anything different? A couple of things that uh, jump out at me are first that um, the ability of different countries at different stages of development to deal with this is, is quite starkly uh, different. Uh, once upon a time faced with a crisis like this, uh, we would have kind of taken it on the chin more than we have. Uh, it's quite remarkable, and it probably owes a lot to the global financial crisis and recession of a decade ago that policymakers have responded the way they have. There's a lot of borrowing. There's a lot of uh, income replacement. There's a lot of credit support. And so for the developed economies, the short-term impact of this is quite different from what it is in countries that just don't have that kind of infrastructure where the kind of raw impact of the of, of the of the disease is going to be uh, greater. Uh, two other points. I'll try and be concise about this because you can quite get quite elaborate. But 
the structure of economies is different. I mean, once upon a time, we thought of manufacturing and, and resource extraction, the commodity sector is kind of leading the cycle. Those were the places where you saw the really big swings in prices and employment. This is a very startlingly different thing because it affects the service sector so strongly. So oddly, economies that used to rely on the service sector as kind of ballast, uh, uh, you know, less variability. Uh, that's where a lot of it has uh, uh, really hit artists. And then the final thing I'll say is the different stages that we're at. I think a lot of countries in the world right now are looking, particularly East Asia, where they kind of got on top of this a little faster in many countries like Taiwan, uh, South Korea, for example, uh, arguably some European countries, but really uh, uh, got on top of it faster. And, and they're well ahead of us in terms of containing the disease and reopening their economies. Uh, here in North America, we're a little bit behind and there may be parts of the world that are gonna be really uh, in, in much worse shape for a protracted period. So that kind of progress of the disease, I guess I said I was gonna talk about two things and I just threw three out there, so I'll stop. Uh, the only thing I would add to that is um, as as many differences as there are across countries, there's uh, a pretty remarkable similarity in terms of the policy approaches. So what you've got is, you know, fiscal authorities are basically providing cash in some form or another to individuals. Uh, they've got wage subsidies in many cases uh, to businesses. They've got credit to businesses so that they can build a financial bridge to that time when their revenues resume. You've got central banks really getting into the picture, uh, you know, uh, massively expanding their balance sheets, buying government bonds, sometimes buying corporate bonds uh, and lowering interest rates where possible. Uh, so there is a fair amount of, uh, I guess, agreement in terms of a broad policy response, different scales. If you look at G20 countries, there's actually a fair difference about the scale of those policy responses. They're all large, but some of them are smoking large, right? Some of them are really quite a lot larger than others, but they're, but uh, so, so variation, but they're all kind of in the same ballpark in terms of the style of policy uh, intervention. Makes a lot of sense. Chris, I've heard you describe on a webcast this pandemic is a supply shock as opposed to a shock in aggregate demand. And would you be able to explain that to us? Like we are just a couple of six-year-olds. <laughs> I know it's a lofty order. Precocious, precocious yes. six-year-olds. Okay. So, so here's how I would describe this. So a demand shock is when households or businesses uh, reduce their spending by choice. So businesses say to themselves, you know, we could actually expand our facilities now, but we're not going to because there's a lot of uncertainty. Or households say, yeah, we could buy that car today, but I'm not going to because we're unsure about the near future and my employment prospects. So our demand falls uh, by choice. A supply shock, which I think is mostly what we're going through now, is where production falls because it has to. So you've got firms that say, well, I can't produce now because I actually can't bring people in uh, and I can't bring people in for the public health reasons. Uh, and so there's a whole bunch of physical capital that is sitting idle. There are planes that are empty. There are factories that are sitting idle. Uh, workers, uh, you know, they would like to work, but they actually can't work because the health requirements 
dictate that we stay at home. So to me, it, you know, the, the, the difference is um, we are in a situation now where, uh, sure, that, you know, a, a lot of people may have reduced income, and as a result of that reduced income, they may be spending less. But the reason they have a reduced income is that they're not able to work. And to me, that's mostly a supply shock going on. Um, which I also think speaks to the nature of the policy. So most of what we've seen governments do so far isn't about trying to convince households and businesses to spend more because we don't want people to actually produce more and spend more. We want them to stay at home until the public health danger has, has subsided. Most of our policies really are about providing income uh, relief for the one or two or three months that people aren't generating income. Uh, just to point to an issue that may come up in a later question is that I think there's now starting to be a discussion about whether uh, our economies need a conventional stimulus type package. And I think we should talk about that because I think we can have a pretty good debate about that. If you were actually a six-year-old, I might try and summarize what Chris was saying by saying that <laughs> the man shock is when uh, you uh, don't go to the store for your chocolate bar or whatever it was you were going to buy because your allowance is cut or you're worried that for some reason you'll need the money for some other uh, purpose. Uh, the supply shock is when you go to the store, but it's not open. The store is shut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I really appreciate that. To, to sort of loop the economy together if you're the kid Bill's of, always been Bill's always been a better communicator <laughs> if you're the if you're if you're in uh, the kid of the family that runs the store maybe you're worried about your allowance because they can't work and they can't open the store so that sort of ties the whole loop in but but I want to come back though this is not the six-year-old uh, uh, discussion but it makes a big difference what the policy response is. Your, your typical monetary and fiscal policy response is really designed for addressing a demand shock. So when households and firms have decided that they don't want to demand the goods and services uh, now, the government policies are trying to induce them to spend when they didn't really want to spend. So they lower interest rates or the government adds directly into demand. Mm -hmm. the, the government demand basically replaces private demand that's not there. But that's not the world we're in. We're in a world where we're not producing because we can't produce because we're stuck at home. So what's the policy response? Well, the truth is you can give people income to, to bridge the gap until they get back to work. But there's not a lot of government policies that I can think of that can actually, you know, fill a plane up uh, that, that, you know, can't be full mm -hmm. or that can, you know, magically allow that factory to operate to produce hockey sticks or maple syrup or whatever it's producing. Those are my two Canadian examples. You see. Um, uh, so, so government policies here are in a different sort of world than what is normal. Sure. You can top up the kids uh, allowance, but if the store is closed, then yeah. no purchases will happen. No candy. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Um, we'll, we'll definitely revisit that, Chris, as far as what should governments do. Coming out of the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, there was an extended period of unemployment uh, and or underemployment for people who were 
in the early stages of their careers. And we also saw the rise of the gig economy and more contractor part-time jobs. Are these trends that we're likely going to see again following the pandemic, according to you guys? Yeah, I, that is a, that's a tough one to answer for mm -hmm. the reason that I alluded to earlier. I mean, forecasting in economics is sort of legendarily uh, a comedy of errors. And um, it's tough to, even in retrospect, it's tough to know how much of what we saw coming out of the uh, global financial crisis and that recession was a consequence of that event, uh, as opposed to things that were happening at the time. The gig economy has one really interesting characteristic and i don't think this is going to go away it's about finding uh unused resources that previously were sitting idle like that spare bedroom in your house or the car that was just sitting in a driveway uh, or the person who had nothing to do at the time and, and would have been happy to earn a buck uh and and connecting those people with customers and so i think a lot of that is going to continue uh, but the nature of demand being so different now, uh, we all know what's happening with ride sharing, for example, uh, or Airbnb, uh, the, the types of opportunities that will arise will be, will be different ones. Uh, one area that I think we're likely to see quite a bit of, a, a bit of innovation is in healthcare. Uh, there's a lot of unmet need. Uh, there are a lot of facilities, uh, even now, that are sitting idle at times when there are people who, are, who want treatments. So I think that there are opportunities for that kind of technological progress to bring uh, customers uh, together with producers and, and make sure that we don't have a lot of uh, idle capacity sitting around. Uh, and uh, anyway, that's, that's just one thought that I have in response to that question. Yeah, one thought that I would add to that, it's really on the labor market side is the notion of working at home. So, uh, you know, we've now been working at home. Many of us have been working at home for nine weeks, and I don't know how you feel about it, but um, I think it, it is uh, very effective. Uh, I don't have commutes. Uh, I'm actually able to do most of the things that I want to do in exactly this sort of format. And, uh, I think we were, as a society, we were at a point where we were just starting to get into flexible work arrangements, you know, where people could work at home one day a week, or people were thinking about whether that would be possible. I think, like, when we get back to work, I think it's going to be pretty clear that, that, you know, the rabbit's out of the hat or whatever the expression is, mm -hmm. right, is that nobody, nobody can now say, oh, well, that just doesn't work. Because for a lot of people in a lot of jobs, it does work. So I think we're going to start seeing more of that. And I think that is going to have some implications. I think there's going to be implications. We've started to see stories about, you know, how much, uh, how much real estate will, will businesses actually need? Well, uh, if most of your people can work successfully from home, you know, two thirds of the time or three quarters of the time, then you probably need less real estate for them to use, you know, in the office building. Although you might also argue that if we need social distancing to continue for a long time, then having a bunch of people in these, uh, in, uh, you know, uh, non-separated offices may not work. So maybe in some situations, they're going to need more real estate. Mm -hmm. But I, I do think we're going to see some changes, uh, and I'm very leery about making forecasts as well for the same reasons the bill is, but I do think we will see some changes in work relationships and work habits because it's, it, it's lasted long enough 
though we just know that some things that we thought were not very easy or possible are easy and possible. Chris inspires me to make a comment uh, about this, and it's in the nature of the unknowns again. Uh, I think that working from home for many businesses and, and for the CD Hound Suit, for example, uh, has worked really well, um, uh, better than we thought it would, uh, very high productivity and a reasonably high level of engagement, although you always worry when you're not in touch with people as often, and I don't mean it because of the need to monitor that they're doing work. I mean, just do they feel connected? Do they feel that the boss even remembers they exist? That type of thing. Um, and it'll be interesting to find out, and I, I, I don't know the answer here, but uh, for the last uh, few weeks, a uh, couple of months or so that we've all been locked down, uh, there's been very little hiring going on. And one business leader I, I heard recently reflecting on this was saying that she thought that it was fine while you were kind of in place and everybody that you were working with was the people that you had been working with before. But as there starts to be some job turnover, and particularly if we get back to growth and we start to do hiring again, what's that going to be like if people are kind of coming into a team, but they don't feel like part of the team because they've never met anybody mm. and they're not <clears throat> getting together and making those connections that are so different in person. So. I don't know the answer there. It's one of those imponderables. And it goes back to that question of what are we building a bridge to? Maybe we will find that many businesses can operate indefinitely and very happily and productively uh, with people separate physically. Um, but it may turn out that there's a real hankering uh, to get together, not just because you're fed up with being at home, mm -hmm. but because you kind of want to have that personal connection with the people you work with. That's a great point. And I can actually just sort of... Um add one quick thing to that. And that, that has been my reality, uh, since transferring, uh, to a new job at the beginning of the, the pandemic measures, uh, I have basically onboarded remotely with a new firm. And while I have semi-regular meetings with my small direct team, the rest of the organization remains just sort of a bunch of names in my inbox. And I don't have a whole lot of human connection to them just yet. So I, I hope that that can come back at some point soon. That's a great point though you make. One, one of the big institutional investors, IMCO, is supporting some internships at the CD Howe Institute over the summer. Uh, this was a spontaneous thing that they decided to do because they realized what a bleak situation a lot of uh, students recently graduating uh, were in. Uh, and we were delighted to do it, but you do uh, think about the quality of the experience that you're going to be providing because mm -hmm. normally so much of what you learn when you come into a workplace especially when you're young and just starting out it's not the formal training it's not the sort of set task that you have it's the 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 meetings where you're talking about you know the future of the organization what people are up to just spontaneous sure. arguments or or exploring ideas and it's 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 harder to provide that so i'm not predicting it'll fail uh, but it does. It, it is a bit of a challenge for us, and I think in some workplaces, I, it'll, people will probably find that they're going to have to do something to kind of get people together on a regular basis. Maybe not those team building exercises where you all go to a an island and have to make a boat out of duct tape and, and plastic bags or whatever it is, you know. But but just the regular interaction that people enjoy in a, in a workplace and and yeah. it makes it kind of rewarding and and productive. One of the things that I'm interested to see is if this changes our access to opportunity outside of our environmental area or, or our um, physical area with, I mean, 
I work remotely entirely. And um, I was actually working with a company in San Francisco for about a year and a half. And I never physically went to go and meet them. So it actually does open up barriers a little bit. And so I'll be interested to see how that kind of plays out as well. well I think that is true. So in the university context, uh, you know, so we have visiting speakers that come in and speak to our students and speak to our, our faculty. And, uh, you know, so when the pandemic hit, our visiting speakers got, uh, you know, basically got canceled or we delayed them six months and said, okay, we'll reschedule you for the fall. But now, as we think about delivering at least the first part of our next academic year online, you start to think not just, okay, how to do it, but you also start to think about the opportunities. Mm -hmm. Well, I just had a webinar uh, in one of my classes. I just uh, managed a webinar with a, a person who ended up being a former, a former student of mine from 30 years ago, but he's the governor of the Central Bank of Ghana. Now, wow. uh, in a world of Zoom presentations, you can have a central banker from Africa a lot easier by Zoom than you can have him in the normal world where it would have been a seven-day trip and a lot of money and a lot of flying sure. and a lot of hotels. Whereas, you know, so, so maybe there's a lot of things that we can do more easily in this world. Uh, and you might argue that, you know, the, the Zoom delivery is not quite the same experience as the in-person, but... I think the Zoom delivery is way better than, you know, from the central bank governor is way better than not having the central bank governor at all. So I think yeah. there are things that become possible and we just have to start looking for the opportunities. Love it. We could, we could pursue this for a long time and I don't mean to take you down a road you don't want to go, but one of the things that's been on my mind, partly as a result of my own experience during this lockdown, but also uh, uh, looking around, one of the complaints about the gig economy uh, and, and teleworking generally is that you kind of lose the normal shape of the workday and you might have uh, people who expect you to be on call, uh, well, basically 24 uh, seven. And uh, one of my daughters is uh, engaged in sourcing personal protective equipment from the other side of the world. Uh, and she's on her own in, 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 in her place. And uh, for her, uh, dealing with people on the other side of the world, I mean, four in the afternoon and four mm -hmm. in the morning don't necessarily uh, feel all that different. So we're going to have to figure out how to do that right. I mean, you can't be running people ragged. You can't be expecting people to be on call uh, in the middle of the night and chained to their devices all the time. So uh, uh, yeah, there will be a, a, an important right. kind of uh, accommodation appropriate for the managers, uh, the workers, and everybody because uh, uh, we'll drive each other crazy otherwise. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate all of you guys, uh, both of you guys elaborating on these points. And I can appreciate the hesitance to, to not make anything official in terms of a prediction. But I think that your guesses are as good as anyone's guesses. And I appreciate you guys sharing your insight. Well, one of the, one of the things that we uh, uh, talked about in advance of of having this conversation was whether we're likely to see changes in the way businesses organize themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a lot of organizations that were running very, very uh, aggressively. Uh, not a lot of retained earnings, you know, share buybacks, a, a lot of payouts, uh, a lot of leverage. Um, and it is odd in a way to see that the global financial crisis and recession did not 
change behavior as much as we might have expected it to, because you'd think people would have learned their lesson. And in some countries, it probably did sink home. Uh, in Canada, not so much. I mean, we had a relatively good recession that time in the sense that the economy came through it reasonably well. And then with interest rates being as low as they did, you really had um, a combination of incentives. And partly it was, you know, large institutional investors, pension funds, they got their returns that they got to pay. Uh, they're, they're looking for, uh, you know, stock market gains or, or payouts. Uh, so will it be different this time? I think it's likely to be different this time, uh, but that's going to be very important to watch because uh, that that quest for yield is still there. Those pension funds that are desperate to make the payouts they've promised and can't invest in safe assets that pay anything like a high enough return. Um, it's one thing to say we've learned our lesson and that we should see uh, businesses and households kind of more self-insuring, have bigger having bigger buffers, not running so close to the edge all the time. But there are still going to be powerful forces out there that are going to be kind of inducing them not to do that. So that's going to be an ongoing tension. And I think on the on the I would uh, continue that discussion about households. So, you know, Canadian households have over the past 20, 30 years have gradually been decreasing their saving rates to the point where they were basically saving pretty close to nothing. Um, and so there's a lot of people who we've all heard, but a lot of people who live, you know, paycheck to paycheck or who don't have more than one month of earnings kind of set aside for mm -hmm. the rainy day. Well, if we are now moving into a world where these kinds of things uh, are expected to happen a little more frequently, then, uh, you know, I think we will see that people start uh, setting aside more. And already we've seen, uh, I think a pretty sharp increase in the savings rate in Canada, and I suspect in other countries as well. And so that is, uh, I think that's a good sign. Uh, I think it's a good sign as long as people are not disintermediating, right? As long as they're not taking their money and just throwing it under their mattress. Uh, but if they're saving it, you know, into the financial system, uh, then that's prudence on their part. And, you know, those funds are then get reallocated and used elsewhere in the system. Um, but it's, it's going to be interesting to see how long that, well, to, to what extent that behavior changes mm -hmm. for households and to, for how long it lasts. Yeah, that's an absolutely great question. I think all of this kind of points back to, I know we wanted to kind of double down on this in terms of just like how, how should governments be and how should businesses be looking at this in terms of... Um, from the business standpoint, having more savings so that they can get through, you know, a longer rainier day. And from the government standpoint, are all of these relief initiatives, are they good objectively? And I know that's a big philosophical yeah. question. So where do you guys want, where do you guys see all of this going? Well, my sense on this is that I think, you know, I'll talk about the Canadian government, I suppose, but but most of them, as I said earlier, I think are doing very broadly similar things. I think I think the government was quite right to look at uh, to to build policies that really provided financial relief or income relief, if you like, or income replacement to individuals. So if individuals are unable to go to work for a month or two or three. Um, then we've got policies in place that basically provide income to those individuals. They, they don't replace it fully, but they provide income so that people can 
you know, pay their rent or pay their mortgage or buy their groceries or buy their prescription drugs or whatever. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think once you start talking about businesses, it becomes a tougher conversation. Um, I don't think we fundamentally care, or I think Bill and I might agree on mm. this. Uh, many people might disagree with what I'm about to say, but I don't think we fundamentally care if a business closes. What we care about is if people are hurt. So I would, I'm more in favor of policies that are there to protect the individual, but I'm okay if you know, kind of businesses go under because in a very dynamic, healthy economy, businesses are dying all the time and new businesses are being born all the time. That's just the way it is. Um, so to me, it's a much tougher question to say, to what extent should governments be, you know, providing assistance to businesses? So on the one hand, you can say, well, if you're a big business and you've got access to capital markets, you've got access to debt markets, you know, if, if you're Air Canada or GM or Apple or, you know, some other big business, do they really need government support? Um, maybe if you're a very small business, you do. Well, our governments have actually provided a lot of, you know, bridge financing. But I actually think you get into a tougher question, a much tougher question when you start thinking about government supporting businesses. And what we've now just seen in the last week or so is that the Canadian government has introduced this facility to provide financing to large employers. But the financing they're providing is, it's basically financing that a lot of businesses won't want. Hmm. Um, they've attached a lot of conditions to these this financing that I think a lot of businesses are looking at that and saying, well, we don't really want those conditions. You know, the interest rates are high and there's this option that the government takes equity and ugh, this, I think, you know, I think doesn't appeal to a lot of businesses. And I think actually that's probably a well-designed policy. I think if the government, I think as a general rule, you want the government to only be a, a lender of absolute last resort. Uh, and that means, okay, if you're going to take our money, you're probably not going to like it, but you're only going to do it if you desperately need it. Um, so I kind of think the Canadian government is taking about the right balance on this. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually reasonably happy with with what I see them doing. I uh, I broadly agree with Chris. Uh, there'd be a bit of room for discussion about the wisdom. If you thought we were going over a, a very deep but narrow valley and on the other side was a world much like the one you had previously been in, the argument for the wage subsidy was that if you kept the connection mm -hmm. between the employer and the employee, yeah. Yep. there would be less damage done on, on, on the way through. But this is where you get to this balancing act that we've been talking about, the difficulty of predicting, especially early on, whether that was going to be the case. Uh, I agree with what Chris said. There's an old adage that in a financial crisis, the central bank should lend liberally at a high rate of interest. The idea being that you want the liquidity to be there for the good credit risks, but you don't want to be propping up the ones that are going to turn into, turn into zombies. I'll, I'll make one comment. It's a big picture comment mm -hmm. uh, that bothers me about what's happening right now. And it, it really is. I've had a lifelong preoccupation with intergenerational fairness in government programs and fiscal policy. And I do not like seeing the taxpayers of today vote themselves programs that they're not willing to pay for on the assumption that somebody down the line who possibly didn't get a say in it or wasn't even born yet is going to here, here. forego some consumption so mm -hmm. that we can en enjoy it now. And there's already a lot of that 
the formal government debts that we see, the unfunded pension plans that we don't see, other types of commitments that we've made, like for healthcare, which clearly have a big kind of intergenerational skew to them. So what's concerning me as we now ramp our debts up by another very substantial quantum is, you know, the young people who now aren't getting to finish their school year and don't get that key first job and face this kind of air pocket early in their careers, uh, they're the ones that are going to be paying off all this debt. And it happens with the coronavirus that the really serious threat is to older people, which to me, like, you would still do it, right? It's not that you shouldn't do it for that reason, but it kind of ices that nasty cake. Yeah. So one of the reasons I would like to see this stop earlier rather than later is because there's a very big bill uh, that we're now adding to the bill that we already passed forward, and we shouldn't have done it in the first place, and we shouldn't be adding to it now without at least thinking, okay, what's the, what's the, what's the implicit deal here? What are we giving in return for all, everything we're taking away? Oh, here, here. I, look, I couldn't agree more with what Bill just said. Uh, and in fact, let's make that implicit deal an explicit deal, I would say. So, um, so while I am largely in favor of what the government is doing now, and that those policies are being added to the public debt, and I, you know, Paul Booth and I wrote an article in the National Post a couple of days ago, where we're sort of guessing, uh, educated back of the envelope calculation that suggests that you know, the federal government debt to GDP ratio is probably going to rise by 15 or more percentage points over the next five or six years. Uh, that doesn't put us in an emergency situation, but it's a big increase in our debt ratio. And rather than, I mean, we have the option to simply, you know, put it into long-term debt, in which case you raise exactly the issues that Bill raised, which is, okay, who's going to now pay for that? So is it going to be my kid's generation that pays for that? And is that appropriate? Well, I think if you worry about this intergenerational fairness, you might say, okay, there's a whole bunch of people who receive the benefits this year from these relief programs. Let's make sure for the most part that roughly the same generation of people pays back for those benefits. So this would be, you know, we didn't save enough for the rainy day, mm -hmm. but it's pouring. So now we're putting it on the charge card, but now we're gonna pay back the charge card you know, let's say three or five years from now. And now what that would mean is, and here is where I would push the government to, to now introduce a plan that says, okay, we're going to get back to the debt GDP ratio that we were at last year, which was 31%. And here's our plan to get back there within fill in the blank, five years, seven years. Uh, and that will require some tough choices that will require some program adjustments maybe some tax adjustments. Uh, I'd probably rather see program adjustments than tax adjustments, but you could talk, talk mm -hmm. about that. But let's actually see an explicit plan to make sure it isn't all paid for by future generations. And that discussion has not, to my knowledge, has not happened, has not started yet in this country. Uh, and I think it should. So, what can we as individuals or small businesses do to, to help with this impact? Like, is there anything that we can do to, to affect the change? I, what, in, in, in thinking about that type of thing, I, I suppose this is a very generic comment. Uh, so I'll try and make it quick. Um, people have a tendency to react on a couple of levels to changes in circumstance. There's kind of your more visceral, uh, uh, quick emotional reaction. 
And then there's your more intellectual, you know, using your forebrain reaction. And usually the best course of action is a little bit of a mixture of the two. Neither has it uh, exclusively, right? But when, in, when circumstances are tense and people are fearful, there is a much more of a danger of overreacting. And so I think that, in, you know, to, to pick a really simple example, when the stock market is going down, people sell. Well, they shouldn't sell because when things were more expensive earlier, they thought that it was good to hold on to them. So how can it possibly be better when they're, you know, to, to sell at a loss? So a lot of what we need to do, I think, as individuals or as business owners is to just try to sleep on it, let a bit of time go by, find somebody who disagrees with you and talk it over. Uh, just resist that momentary impulse that says, oh, I'm going to slip my wrists or I'm going to just like put everything on zero on the roulette wheel, some crazy thing like that. That's a fair point for sure. Uh, definitely the human panic. And I just have this really vivid flashback now of being in your economic crises class, Professor Reagan, about uh, 10 years ago now, where we talked about just all of the crashes of human history and how people were so emotional in terms of uh, aiding the decline. So just a sudden <laughs> flashback moment there for me. We've got a couple more questions here for you. Uh, and we are, I'm just very uh, conscious of the time as well. Um, for people who are not typically into economics, like you guys are, uh, you guys obviously eat it for breakfast, lunch, and, and maybe dinner. I don't know. What should people be paying What's attention next? to? What's the snacks as well? Okay. What should people be paying attention to or keep uh, sort of top of mind as we go forward in the next several months? Well, my, my question, my answer to that question is, is not necessarily a, a sort of month by month one, but mm -hmm. um, I'll, 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 I'll put it this way. There are um, certain economic indicators that everybody follows uh, quite obsessively. They make headlines all the time. And one of them is GDP. You know, the economy grew by 3%, the economy contracted by 1%. GDP, the more you look at it, the more you have to ask yourself, what on earth are we measuring here? It's correlated with things we care about. You know, more jobs, more GDP, more jobs. There are reasons why we pay attention to it. But uh, there are lots of examples that people offer, like wars, if you're measuring activity and, and, and output only, uh, they can look like they're a positive for GDP and wars are obviously destructive. A war is a terrible thing to happen. So the weak sibling, the, the one that gets ignored that I would make a pitch for is uh, what they track, not in terms of quarterly activity, but what's happening to the stock of wealth in the country. There's a lot of effort that goes into uh, putting these balance sheet measures together by StatScan, particularly because StatScan is kind of in the forefront of this, but other national statistical agencies and they're not just looking, they're looking at things that you'd expect, like the stock of housing, uh, planted equipment that businesses have, but they're also trying to measure other things. They're trying to measure the value of natural resources. They're trying to bring the environment into it. If you're very ambitious, you can think about the value of human capital. And to me, those are the measures that tell you much more about what our capacity to enjoy life is going to be in the future. Mm -hmm. Are we adding to our wealth? Are we subtracting from our wealth? Uh, are we spending foolishly or wisely? So those balance sheet accounts, they come out quarterly. Some of the indicators in them occasionally get a little bit of press, like the household debt ratio, but there's a wealth of interesting information there. And to me, that's what we really ought to be paying attention to, because that's where that, that points to the future far more than whether GDP went up or down this quarter or that quarter. So let me add, um, and I'll give you some 
something that's much more short term than the bigger picture and even more forward looking, I think, than what Bill is talking about. But if you wanted to kind of know how we are doing, you know, this month in the great shutdown and how's the next month progressing, uh, I'll give you data to look at that ordinarily I wouldn't say that you should look at much. So um, employment data tends to be very bumpy month to month. And so when the labor force survey comes out or the employment and earnings survey comes out and the numbers are up or they're down this month, you kind of, you kind of roll your eyes and you go, yeah, well, that stuff is very noisy. But the advantage of employment data is that it comes out faster than GDP, for example. Um, and I think we're in a situation, I may be wrong on this, but I think we're in a situation now where employment has dropped by so much because we're all locked at home that I think the next uh, six months will be very interesting. And there may be some noise, but I think there will be, and I certainly hope there will be a kind of a clear trend up. And if for four months in a row, employment stays low, then it, you can kind of conclude that, well, if employment is very, very low, then that means there's a whole bunch of people not working, which means there's a whole bunch of income not being generated, which means GDP is going to stay low and mm. that's not so good. Whereas if employment kind of takes up again, then I think, uh, you know, that the, the rest follows. So I think if I were to just look at short-term indicators here, to, to want a short-term indicator, I would be looking at the labor market numbers. One problem with the labor market number is that, um, if somebody is, uh, so what am I doing? I'm here, I'm working, but I'm at home. So if I, if the labor force survey were to call me up, I would say, yes, I'm working, uh, even though I'm stuck at home. I think that the real problem situations are those people who are stuck at home and unable to work, right? So if you're in the construction sector or you're in the retail sector, or you're in, you know, other parts of the service sector, um, that you're unable to work. Those are the ones that are not generating income and that, you know, bad for government's tax collection, bad for their own income, bad for their businesses where they work. So I'd look at the labor market indicators. Sorry, that was a very long and rambly answer. That's okay. We've appreciated uh, where this conversation has gone. Um, Lisa, do you want to take this last question as it would normally go to you? Yeah. So we normally ask, a few questions at the end, but just in the, the interest of time and the, the content of this episode, we found that the most important for today is what is the best piece of career advice that you have ever received that you would like to pass on to our listeners? I don't know that I can do it in just one. Um, <laughs> I apologize. Uh, I guess some of it's kind of circum circumstantial, but um, one of the things, I mean, find something you love and, and get good at it. I mean, that's, that's, if you're lucky enough that you can do that in your career, uh, then, then, you know, your, your work's going to be like a vacation and a vocation at the same time. Um, one thing that I've often said to fairly young people when they're first starting out, uh, and I think this would be true in, in, in quite a range of circumstances, certainly in the world I work in, become an expert on something. Make sure that you learn something that other people uh, don't know uh, uh, or, you know, hardly anybody knows about uh, that they'll value because 
if you're an expert on something, if you're the go-to person, they might not like you for whatever other reason, right? Like it doesn't matter. They'll still, you'll still be the person they'll go to because you know something that nobody else knows and, and that they need. So I've always kind of liked that because when you're young and starting out, you might be insecure about this or that. Somebody looks at you the wrong way. You know, you're not sure you're fitting in. Be the expert and that'll carry you a, a very long way. Um, this is sort of an obvious one, but I'm surprised that people don't do it more often. Find, when, you, when you see somebody you admire, imitate that person. Like what could be more straightforward, right? And yet sometimes people don't seem to do that. Like if you see somebody who's doing things that you uh, really admire that seem to work, um, be, study that person and, 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 you know, not like slavishly imitate every facial gesture or something, but you know, usually successful people, people who have good work-life balance and integrity and all that, there are things that you can learn uh, uh, from them. And I think just consciously doing that is good. And then I mentioned integrity just now. I mean, what do they say? Never do anything that you wouldn't want your parents to uh, <laughs> read about in the paper or, or your spouse to find out about or your kids, depending on the age you're at, uh, that your kids would be ashamed of. Like, that's the most important thing of all over the over the long run. You always want to be able to, you want your conscience to be clean, because uh, you know one misstep uh, it, it can be such a serious thing, especially if it's kind of like on a slippery slope. It's it's terrible. Some of the big scandals that have happened have started with one kind of not so bad thing, but it, one thing builds on another. So yeah, just that that idea that would you want your mother to read about this in the paper in the morning? Uh, and if the answer is no, then just don't do it. <laughs> Okay, three great pieces of advice from Bill. So I'll only give one, but it's connected to Bill's first. So Bill's first was be an expert on something. And I think it's good advice. So mine is complementary to that. And it's not advice that I learned from anybody, but it is something that I have learned, which is learn how to and take very seriously how to communicate that expertise. And I would focus on writing and public speaking. Those two things are super important. Um, whether you are writing, you know, op-eds or whether you're writing 25 page papers or 2,500 word essays or a ministerial briefing note, the ability to explain a difficult idea in a clear and structured way is, uh, is super important and far more rare than it should be. And if you can not only be the Bill Robson expert on something, but you can also explain it, explain it in written words and explain it in front of people around a dinner table or standing up in the boardroom, you will knock it out of the park. Those two things combined are just an unbeatable combination. You're here and, uh, Amazing. And, and, and learning that that's such an acid test too, like to write it down. Sometimes you have an idea in your head and you just think, Oh, this is so clear and compelling. And then, <laughs> Until you write it. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know. How, this probably doesn't happen to Chris as often as it happens to me, but you know, you start to challenge yourself to write it out in 2,500 words and you're going, Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> well, in fact, when I, when I write, you know, a 2,500 word essay or a 700 word op-ed, uh, I generally find it easy to do it, but I generally find it easy to do it only because I have thought first 
about what it is that I wanted to say. And in those occasions where I, I get to paragraph two and it just doesn't go, it just doesn't happen. I realize, oh, I don't have these ideas clear mm -hmm. in my head. I haven't really sorted this out yet. Uh, and so, so I've often said, I always tell my students that, you know, clear writing is reflective of clear thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think you can write clearly unless you can think clearly, but the act of writing also pushes you to sort out your thoughts. Uh, so going through that communication exercise, I think it's just super important, super valuable. I love it. Amazing. Thank you so much to the both of you uh, for sharing all of these great comments and insights and uh, really bringing this conversation to a level that I think will be really interesting to people who don't necessarily always read the business section of the newspaper and you know haven't haven't done 30 courses in econ before um so thank you for having us thank you well we'll call it a wrap for the week at that that um for the career builders podcast i'm mike bird i'm lisa Pacose. our guests bill robson and chris reagan we hope you're well and we hope you'll join us again soon bye for now hey lisa here again if the pandemic has caused you challenges at work or has caused you to reconsider the work that you're doing, I would love to help. I help people find clarity on their next career move and help with tools and tactics to land a new job or start a new business. If you're interested in learning more or setting up a free consultation call, head to www.careerbalancecoaching.com or you can email me directly, lisa at careerbalancecoaching.com. I look forward to chatting with you and I hope you stay well.